Ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio with your host, Tim Banal. Hello out there, ladies and gentlemen. This is Tim Banal with BanalofAmerica.com, Banal of America Audio. This week we wrap up the season premiere of Banal of America Audio Season 1 with Part 2 of the Jim Mars interview. For those of you who don't know who Jim Mars is, he's the author of Crossfire, an in-depth look at the JFK assassination, Alien Agenda, a comprehensive look at the UFO phenomenon, Rule by Secrecy, a veritable digest of secret societies, their history throughout humankind, Psy Spies, one of the first books out on remote viewing, and two books on 9-11, War on Freedom and Inside Job. In this week's installment, we talk about Psy Spies first. That's uh, Jim's book on remote viewing. We talk about uh, some of the craziest things he's seen in remote viewing and also uh, what he thinks of the evolution of remote viewing since it first came about. And then later on down the line, we talk about 9-11. He breaks down why he thinks 9-11 was an inside job. And we continue to talk about uh, future potential attacks on America and what the fallout will be from a nuclear attack in America should it happen. Also, we get into uh, the 2004 election, electronic voting, uh, the Mexican border problem, 2012, the Bible Code, Jim's appearance on the Penn and Teller show on Showtime, and what an average day is like for Jim Mars. So we cover tons of ground this week. I hope you uh, really enjoy it. If you haven't heard the first part, it's still available at binallofamerica.com. Without any further ado, this interview was conducted on... August 4th, 2005. Let's take it away. All right, well, I just want to touch on size Spies briefly. And, uh, remote viewing? Yes. Okay. Size Spies, your book, that's where this is coming from. Right. Um, there was a lot of uh, like excitement about remote viewing when it seemed to first come out and people were talking about it, but now it's sort of lost some of its luster, and it seems like a lot of people are are like claiming to be remote viewers, or maybe they were, or they are, and... They're sort of discrediting it, kind of. Do you think? What, what do you think about that? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, way back there in 1992, when I first discovered the uh, what was then a top secret U.S. Army uh, remote viewing unit, um, and got to talking with some of those people, I made the prediction. I said, "Yeah, I said I can already see it." I said, "Once this hits the public, uh, instead of Madame Zodiac palm reader." You're going to have Madam Zodiac remote viewer, and this is indeed what's happening. You go up on the internet and go look around and look in some of the uh, new age type publications, and you see all these ads and all these people for remote viewing. They are taking the tack that, and a lot of people have the idea that remote viewing is a psychic uh, phenomenon, and to an extent it is, but I guarantee you the CIA and the U.S. Army uh, did not delve into this uh, thinking that they were just going to practice psychic activity. Uh, remote viewing, when done properly and following the methodology that was developed uh, in the science laboratory, uh, they have found that anyone has the capability of doing this, although obviously someone who has a natural bent towards it will do better than than somebody else. But it is a technology, it is a methodology for simply for um, connecting the two halves of the brain. You see, the right brain is pretty intuitive and, and highly psychic. The left brain is not psychic at all. And so what remote viewing does is simply provides a, 
a method for these two sides of your brain to communicate with each other. But it is a exacting science, and it takes some training, and most importantly, it takes practice. I've always used the example of it's like learning to play Chopin on the piano. Yes, we all have the capability of doing that, but I can assure you that a whole lot of people can do it better than I can. And most of the reason for that is is that I just cannot or will not take the time to sit and practice at the piano until I can really play a Chopin tune on it. And that's the same problem with remote viewing. Uh, it really takes a lot of time and effort and just plain old drudge work. Uh, and a lot of people uh, are not willing to devote that to it. They see it as you just sit down, close your eyes, and you can just see anything you want to. Well, it really doesn't work that way. So it's kind of a ticklish thing, and this is why I think that in recent years, and what you were alluding to is the fact that um, the kind of the decline in the interest in remote viewing stems from, number one, when you get into it, you find out that it's a lot of drudge work, and that turns off a lot of people. Number two, the government has taken very, very uh, severe steps to try to downplay the credibility of this subject, and so they pretty well uh, kept it out of the public limelight. And in fact, although the Washington Post and the New York Times carried front-page stories back in 1995 when it was finally uh, admitted to the public that they had been doing these psychic studies, uh, I closely monitored the Dallas-Fort Worth news media, and to my knowledge, to this very day, there's never been a story on it. So for those people who watch the local TV news at 10 and read their local newspaper and like to think of themselves as well-informed, uh, they don't have a clue. They don't even know that this exists. If they do hear about it, they think it's some kind of new age, woo-woo type thing, and uh, they just don't pay any attention to it. So I think the, the uh, culmination of all that has kind of led to a a decrease in interest in remote viewing, and yet I am, of all people, perfectly aware that uh, done properly, remote viewing could provide us to answers and some of the most vexing mysteries that we have. A uh, well-mounted, well-funded, well-conducted uh, remote viewing study could tell us who killed Kennedy and who ordered it. It could also tell us what happened on 9-11. It could answer a lot of the questions that a lot of people have. But unfortunately, again, we're talking about a, a very large devotion of time and effort on several people's parts. Everybody has to pay the rent, uh, and it takes money to do that kind of stuff. And uh, the people who have the kind of money, tax money usually, that could be applied here are the very people that don't want those answers out to the public. <laughs> You've done a lot of research in your remote viewing. You've probably talked to a lot of remote viewers. Right. So. In fact, I've actually, I've even taught remote viewing. Really? Yeah. Oh, okay. Then that almost puts a, a different twist on this question. So I was going to ask you, what's the strangest, most intriguing, maybe, just the one thing that you've heard about being remote viewed? Uh, well, oh, man. <laughs> Do you have a personal favorite? You know? uh, well, of course, I guess number one, I'm going to give you two, and I'll try to make it brief. One is, of course, the very first time I tried to remote view, and to try to cut a long, complicated story short, I was heading to New Mexico and to Albuquerque, and I was uh, 
I knew I was going to go to the headquarters of a company that was trying to introduce uh, remote viewing to the business world. So I pictured some office building or, you know, something. So uh, I said I, I had already uh, done some coverage as a reporter on transcendental meditation. So I knew how to kind of get to a meditative state. So I thought, I'm going to give this a try. And so I just sat quietly and kind of cleared myself and uh, and I got a very clear picture of this uh, low, uh, one-story strip shopping center type place with earth tones and 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 a high point on the corners of the building. And then and then I got a very clear picture of the floor plan. And um, so I sketched all that out on a piece of paper and I took it with me to New Mexico. But when I got there, I found out that this company was operating out of an individual's ranch-style home. It wasn't anything like what I saw. So I thought, well, I, you know, I guess I'm not any good. But then about a year, more than a year went by, and I went back out to Albuquerque. And uh, when I la uh, landed there, uh, I was told that they had leased some office space, and they were now uh, had found some success in teaching remote viewing to people in business. And so they had uh, leased this office space, and they took me there. And the guy had kept my sketches handed it back to me with a note that said, good job, and I had I had correctly sketched this uh, strip shopping center area uh, and then where they had located their office, and then when we got there, he went and got the uh, one of the uh, official floor plans of this office building that they used to rent offices to people, and it was 100% accurate as to what I had drawn. Now, the key thing here is, is that uh, more than a year before, when I had sketched this office building, it had not been built yet. Wow. So I had remote viewed into the future. <laughs> now, I thought that was pretty wild. Yeah. And, wild. Uh, and I still have all that in my files. So I can show you my original sketch, and I can show you a photograph of the building and compare the sketch of the floor plan I made with the... Uh, with the official floor plan, so, you know, I've got all that well documented. Nice. I think one of the strangest things, again, was when I was dealing with the military remote viewers, and I was asking them the same question, what's some of the strangest thing you've remote viewed? And uh, it came up that at one point they actually remote viewed the Loch Ness Monster. <laughs> and I said, whoa, well, okay. I said, what'd you find out? And they said, well, it's really strange. They said, there is something there. It leaves a wake in the water. We can see this thing moving through the water. But when we try to backtrack it and figure out where it comes from, it, like, just disappears, you know? And when we remote view forward in time and try to see where it's going, it likewise just kind of disappears. And I said, well, you know, there's this theory that it's some sort of a, a still-living dinosaur. And they said, yeah, that's pretty much what we see. And so I said, well, hey, guys, I said, you know, all throughout history, we've had all this uh, human narrative of ghosts. Maybe it's a dinosaur ghost. And they all just looked real shocked because they had never thought of that and said, holy cow, maybe so. Maybe it's a dinosaur ghost. <laughs> so there's another theory of the Loch Ness Monster, but it fits what the remote viewers saw, which is there is something there. It, it looks like a large animal or a large dinosaur. It makes a wake through the water, but it doesn't come from anywhere, and it doesn't go anywhere. It, like, just appears and disappears. So anyway, I thought that was pretty amazing. That's a great story. All right, um, let's move right on to uh, your two books, War on Freedom. Now, that's out of print, right? Yes. All right, yes. cool. So I have a collector's item? That's right. Hang on to that. I will. It's got, the, it's got the whole nine yards of not only about 9-11, but, but the aftermath and 
the uh, Patriot Act, Homeland Security, uh, all of the gutting of the Constitution that's taken place. Uh, that, I think, is an important book. My edit, you know, that was the one that I originally had a contract for with HarperCollins. Yeah. And my editor said, this is going to sell a million, because it put it all together in one place so that you could, anyone could clearly see the, uh, the overview of what was going on. And this is what's necessary, because 9-11 and the aftermath, in, in many ways, is very similar to the Kennedy assassination. And like the Kennedy assassination, you can focus on one particular argument. You know, what hit the Pentagon? Uh, what caused the World Trade Centers to collapse? And you can argue all day long. And, and good-minded people uh, who just can't agree, you know, end up just confused and it's controversy and you don't know what's going on. But when you take all of the elements put together, it becomes very clear uh, what went on there. And so, uh, but then they canceled it with no particular excuse, and uh, and everything just continued to go. So I self-published as The War on Freedom, uh, which is the one you're talking about, and that was, I kept selling out of that, but still, uh, you know, the sales, uh, the cost outpaced the sales. And so then I ended up sending, uh, selling uh, the portion just on 9-11 to a West Coast publisher, and uh, it's now available uh, in a book called Inside Job, but that pretty much just deals with the questions of 9-11. And you can't really get a clear picture of 9-11 until you put it into the context of everything that was going on before and after. For example, the plans to invade uh, Afghanistan and Iraq were laid years before 9-11. In fact, you can actually go back to 1992 when Dick Cheney was Secretary of the Army uh, or Defense under uh, the first Bush administration, and you find that he issued a defense guidance policy paper which called for the invasion of Afghanistan and a regime change in Iraq and a buildup of U.S. military forces in the Middle East to gain control over their oil supplies. Now, at the time, communism had just collapsed. Everybody was breathing a sigh of relief. Everybody, you know, they were, Clinton was heading for the White House. Uh, they were talking about this big budget surplus that we were going to have. And everybody just thought that was wild hawk talk, okay? So then, of course, in 2000, Bush Jr. gets elected, and Dick Cheney is now his vice president. And uh, in September of 2000, uh, there was a neocon think tank called the Project for the New American Century, uh, and both uh, and uh, Cheney, Rumsfeld, Condoleezza Rice, Pearl, um, all these guys were members of this think tank, and they issued a position paper called Rebuilding America's Defenses, and it echoed what Cheney had advocated back in 1992. It said, we've got to invade Afghanistan. We've got to have a regime change in Iraq. We've got to build up U.S. military presence in the Middle East, gain control over their oil supply. But whoever was writing this uh, NICPAC report was at least honest. They said in September 2000, they said, uh, this is going to be a tough sell to the American public, and this agenda will probably occur only very, very slowly. Uh, unless there is a, quote, catastrophic and catalyzing event like Pearl Harbor, okay? So right then they knew they needed an unprovoked attack 
to arouse the public to get them to go along with this neocon agenda. Well, a year later, September 11, 2001, they got it. So this was uh, so. Then the question becomes: Then, well, did they? You know, how could these 19 Arab hijackers overcome our 40 billion dollar defense systems? Uh, uh, not only with the military, with the interceptors, but with the airlines and airport security, and all like that. And uh, it just seems far-fetched to me and many, many others that just some group of zealot, religious zealots, uh, could actually be able to do that. Well, I'm telling you, the way they were able to do that is here's a few things you need to know. Okay. Number one. Number one. Yep. The security company <coughs> named Securicom, which handled security for the World Trade Center, Dulles International Airport, and United Airlines, uh, had on its board of directors um, the younger brother of George W. Bush. Isn't that interesting? Yep. Um, so, in other words, they had uh, Marvin P. Bush set on their board of directors. So, and then, of course, uh, so they're handling security for the World Trade Center, electronic security. We know that a few weeks before September the 11th, according to building tenants, that there were unannounced, unscheduled, and sudden uh, security uh, exercises, and particularly on the weekend. And they would shut down all the electronic stuff. Elevators weren't working. Turn off the lights for a while. And so, what is it? Why is that important? Because the evidence today is clear that the World Trade Center was brought down by controlled explosives. And here's an opportunity for those explosives to have been put into place. Um, so the question becomes. And then, uh, when you look at the next thing, the key thing actually to understanding how that 9/11 was allowed to occur is in the war game exercises. In the weeks after 9-11, on the Internet particularly, there was some talk about war game exercises being uh, done on the morning of September the 11th, but it was largely decried as just being an Internet uh, urban myth. You know, that didn't, ah, that didn't happen. And it was more than a year later, it was into the late summer of 2002, when Richard Clark, uh, who had on September the 11th was the counterterrorism chief, uh, published his book, Against All Enemies. And just right at the very beginning of it, he tells how that on the morning of September the 11th, he contacted uh, General Myers, head of NORAD, and said, have you launched interceptors? And General Myers said, well, you know, we're in the middle of a war game here. Is this a war game or, or is this real? <laughs> and then we have quotes from other people, both flight controllers, uh, NORAD people, that when they first heard the reports that four airliners had been hijacked, yada, yada, all, they were confused. They thought it was part of the war games. That's why they were slow to respond. That's also why that the interceptors, which normally would have been there within minutes, they, they didn't get there in time because they were all out over the Atlantic or up into Canada doing this Cold War scenario. All right, and under the uh, there were several war games are going on. The NRO had a practice one of a plane crashing into a building that morning of September the 11th. So so much for the stories we've heard from Bush, Cheney, and others saying, "Well, who would have thought that they would have used airplanes to crash into buildings?" They knew they were preparing for that very thing. Okay. All right. Let me uh, let me jump in with a question here that kind of relates to exactly what you're talking about. Um, we recently heard about how there were drills going on during the London bombing as well. 
Exactly. Same thing. Same methodology. And I wanted to ask if you thought this was a, uh, a good example of evidence coming out in the early hours of a story? Yes. yes. In fact, uh, this is what I try to admonish everyone. When something big like this happens, like a big terror strike, listen very, very closely to all of the immediate coverage, and you're going to start hearing some truth here, there, and everywhere, but then after about 24 hours, uh, turn off your TV, okay? Because from that point on, you're only getting the official version, and if you just keep that thing running 24-7, after, after a while, you're just propagandized into uh, to viewing this as one thing. For example, on 9-11, there were many, many people, fire department people, firemen, fire officials, news reporters, saying that there were multiple explosions in the World Trade Center. But after about 24 hours and the, and the official story began to coalesce, then all that reporting stopped, and now it's getting more and more difficult to find those quotes and those people who said that, okay? But now I just have to finish this thing about the war game exercise. Okay. So after more than a year, when everybody thought that that really didn't happen, we find out that it really did happen. In fact, there were like as many as two dozen war game exercises taking place that morning. This explains how they were able to defeat our uh, defense systems. And since it's also been made public that the National Security Agency intercepted a electronic message from Mohammed Atta, who we've been told is the head who was leading the hijackers, the day before, in which he states, the match is about to begin. Tomorrow is zero hour. Now, notice he didn't use the word jihad or attack or operation. He used the word match. In other words, the games are on for tomorrow. So, in other words, the hijackers knew precisely when to coordinate their hijacking attack with these war games with all our planes out of position and all our defenses confused. Now, how could they have known that when the public didn't even know about war games for more than a year? They could have only known that from an inside source. So this, what, this is what makes 9-11 an inside job. And the best light you can put on it is that, like Pearl Harbor, they allowed the attacks to take place to further their own political agenda. That's the best light. But once you understand that the majority of the hijackers were Saudis and that the, the nation state that is most likely behind those attacks is Saudi Arabia. The top al-Qaeda chief uh, caught before 2003 was Abu Zabidah, and he was tricked into revealing that he was secretly working for three Saudi princes, all of whom died within a month or so after that information leaked out. Okay? So it's the Saudis. Now, who's the close friends and business associates of the Saudis? The Bush family. In fact, summer 2000, uh, the Bush family was flown to Saudi Arabia at the guest of the Saudi royals and of the bin Laden family in particular. And what also was written off as a urban myth and has now been firmly uh, proven is that during the no-fly zone, someone high in the Bush administration allowed uh, 140 Saudis, including 40 members of the bin Laden family, to fly across country, gather in Boston, and they were all flown out of the country before they could ever be interrogated by the FBI about what they might know about the 9-11 attacks. Now, this should point us in the direction of who's really responsible for all this. All right, let's take it up to today, not specifically like today, but um, 
The talk or the, the threat du jour right now this summer has been nuclear attack. Right. And a lot of people are asking, do you think it's going to happen and when? Obviously, you're not going to know when, but you know what I mean. Like, like well, you know, when will the circumstances dictate that you should expect right. it probably is going to happen? Uh, there is some serious talk floating around right now about, uh, believe it or not, less than a week away, August the 8th. And why August the 8th? Because August the 8th is the anniversary of uh, the date that we bomb, atom bombed Hiroshima. Okay? And there will be, of course, always some, re as usual, retrospective pieces in the newspaper. And since whoever is behind all these attacks, you know, that has an affinity for symbolism, uh, you know, 9-11 hit on the very day that they were going to have 9-11 Police Day where everybody was going to, you know, commemorate the and, and remember that if you had an emergency, you called 9-11. You know, you think that was just a coincidence? And you have 7-7 Day over in London. Uh, you know, they, they obviously, so there is some thought that August the 8th would be a very propitious day for uh, setting off a nuke somewhere. I don't necessarily know that's true, and I, of course, sincerely hope that that's not the case. Yeah. And frankly, I, I don't, I don't really look forward to that that much because my own opinion is, is that since these attacks have all been laid to Al Qaeda, and since Al Qaeda was a creation of our CIA, and since everybody knows you never fully get away or retire or leave the CIA, then we have to at least consider the possibility that al-Qaeda is still under the control of the CIA. In fact, al-Qaeda essentially means the base. And early on I thought, oh, well, okay, then that just means that's the, al-Qaeda means their central headquarters, their, their base, you know. But uh, recently I've been made aware of the idea that it also could mean the database, okay? So al-Qaeda is the database of Arab mercenaries available to the CIA. Oh. Okay? Yeah. And, and of course, they can trigger them, do all kinds of things. And, you know, with, with Muslim fundamentalists and fanatics, it's easy enough to go find them and say, hey, I got a message from Allah, and he said, go blow yourself up over here, and some of those folks will do it, you know, yeah. if they think it came from God. But, of course, the masterminds, who, by the way, you know, they're still seeking the mastermind of the London explosions, the masterminds, they, they're not godly people. <laughs> they're getting paid. They're mercenaries. They, they, they uh, do what they're paid to do. In fact, the uh, hijackers included Muhammad Atta. We are told, according to the official story, that they were uh, Muslim fundamentalists and that they were, you know, they sacrificed themselves for the greater good of Allah and that they look forward to going to uh, Allah's heaven and, and having their 22 virgins and all this fine stuff. And yet, according to the Boston newspapers, the night before the attacks, they're all out in clubs drinking heavily, smoking cigarettes, and looking for hookers. You know, oh, that doesn't sound like a, you know, and, and under the Muslim religion, you're not supposed to smoke or drink, and you're not supposed to have anything to do with women other than your wife. So, I mean, they, they just, their actions are not those of religious fanatics, but more like Arab mercenaries on the payroll who are getting ready, partying it up, and getting ready to go on an operation. So where do you think this is going to go in the next uh, two, five years? This is going to, the war is going to spread? Well, that, and uh, that, are there going to be more attacks? What do you yes, think? I'm afraid so. Uh, and the thing is, there are like 40 small nukes, and that's another thing a lot of people don't realize. They now have nuclear weapons the size of baseballs, okay? 
And if you use tritium or some other substance rather than plutonium, you can cut the radiation way down. Um, when you study the explosion in the World Trade Centers, and particularly the bringing down the demolition of Building 7, which collapsed at 525 on September the 11th, uh, you see the telltale marks of a controlled explosion. And based on a lot of different information, I suspect that, certainly in the case of the towers, that a small nuclear device was used. Again, it does not have to be messy. There does not have to be a lot of radiation. And besides that, once it's occurred and everybody runs in, they're spraying water all over everything and pouring concrete all over everything, which is what they did, then you further reduce the uh, ability to monitor for radiation. But this would explain the pulverization of the concrete because these little devices pack a tremendous pressure wave which would just pulverize concrete. And that's what I have. I have covered many building demolitions, and there's always huge chunks of concrete that they have to break up and haul away. And yet in both instances of the World Trade Center, there was no large chunks of concrete. It was all dust. And if it didn't float out over Manhattan and it just landed there in a big pile and covered everything, as we've all seen the, the uh, photographs. So, yes, I'm afraid that we're going to face further terrorist attacks, but I'll tell you something. The corporate wealthy people who truly run this country are not going to allow that to happen until their back is against the wall. Okay? Business will continue as usual. The profit line has to be maintained as long as possible because when a nuke goes off, let me give you a possible scenario. I was out in Los Angeles not long back and trying to drive on the freeway about 5.30, 6 o'clock at night, and it was a parking lot. Nobody was going anywhere. Yeah. Okay? Mm -hmm. And this is on a good day. That's on a normal day. So it suddenly occurred to me, if, if a nuke was to go off, not, on, not, just, not in Los Angeles, okay, but let's say Des Moines, Iowa, or Kansas City, okay, the people in Los Angeles are going to panic. Yeah. They're going to say, oh, my God, we, we're next, and they're all going to try to get out of the city. Well, you know, you can't get out of the city on a good day. So it's just going to be a log jam. Nobody's going to be able to drive out of there. So people are going to grab up a little food and a jar of water, and they're going to start hiking eastward because they can't go in the ocean, and they don't want to go towards Sacramento. And so they're going to head to the east, and they're going to end up out in the desert. And after a day or two of wandering around in the desert with no food and water, they're going to show up at one of those FEMA camps, which have been well documented and are in place all around this country. And we're not going to have to worry about them coming around to your home and rounding you up and taking you to one of these relocation camps. Uh, they're going to have huge mobs of people begging to get in. Please give me a little food and water, and please let me in there. And that's when uh, that's when there will be uh, looting and there will be large place uh, large scale displacement. Uh, and that's when there's going to be a lot of social unrest. People are going to go, why can't we be protected? Uh, of course, more tyrannical, centralized government, oppressive government will come into being. Others then will rebel against that. And it's going to become very, very unstable in this country. And it will be a time where that they would want to call in the U.S. military to maintain order. But the U.S. military is not here, is it? No. Their, their primary job is to defend this country, and they're not even here. They're in Kuwait, and they're in Iraq, and they're in Afghanistan, Kosovo, Germany. They're everywhere else but here. Okay? So what do they do then? 
they would have the government would have to go to the United Nations and appeal, you know, could you please send a peacekeeping force to restore order in the United States? Okay? Now what is the one country that has the manpower and the and the equipment power to try to come and garrison the cities in the United States? China. Huh. Now China also has the best interest in this country because we're are their main source of exports. Yep. Go to Walmart. Everything's made in China. If this country falls apart, there goes their consumer base. So they're going to be more than happy to come and restore order in this country. And of course, one thing's going to lead to another. How do you think? How happy do you think Americans are going to be if they see Chinese troops patrolling the streets of their town or city? Not too happy. It's going to it's going to be Iraq over here. Okay. So I mean, it, this does not sound very happy and optimistic, but. This, to me, is as plain as can be. And by the way, living in Texas, most people haven't heard this, but there are continuing troubling reports of armed Chinese soldiers being encountered along the Texas-Mexico-Arizona-Mexico border. I've heard that, yeah. Yeah. So this is the pre... See, in any military operation, uh, the shipment of supplies is uh, more complicated than the shipment of people, because people can load and unload themselves off of transportation, airplanes, everything else. Yeah. Uh, equipment has to be loaded by people, and it has to be shipped somewhere. So and so to have a really successful military operation, uh, one of the keys is if you can pre-position your equipment. So it's already there waiting for you when you need to use it. And to me, this is, seems to be what's happening is all of this equipment is being prepositioned in the United States. Uh, a few years ago, there were pictures circulating of, of Russian uh, tanks and battlefield equipment uh, being shipped around the United States, and it had been painted white, okay? Yeah. Now, it would only be a matter of minutes with some blue ink or blue paint and a stencil, and you've got a United Nations vehicle. Yeah. And so I really believe that we are being set up for the biggest fall that since maybe the fall of France in 1940. And we're not even being told about it. Nobody's even thinking about it. And the people who are hearing me talking right now are going to go, oh, boy, that guy's really paranoid. But I'm telling you, the evidence is all there. Now, I think my listeners, they're very familiar with who you are. And I think uh, they're just, they're just going to listen and, and take it all in. You know what I mean? Well, Tim, let me just say this. I yeah. truly and sincerely hope that I'm wrong. Oh, believe me. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was listening to that. I do, too. <laughs> but you ask, and I'm telling you what I see coming. And then, uh, so see, you can see how serious uh, any any nuclear detonation, uh, even if it's just one suitcase bomb that takes out, you know, 12 or 14 square city blocks and just maybe a medium-sized American city, that's all it would take to trigger this uh, panic, this uh, turmoil, and this martial law, and everything else, okay? And the, the guys in control of all this, they understand that. So they're not going to let that happen until it's... And that's why that this uh, the movement to impeach Bush, the, the Fitzhugh uh, grand jury that's taking place, if they should come back with indictments against the Bush administration, if any of this truth of the uh, manipulation 
and the creation of 9-11 attacks, it, if it's ever absolutely proven that those buildings were brought down by controlled explosives and that it was a cruise missile that hit the Pentagon and that uh, therefore is all under the control of, of our top leadership or at least they covered up the truth of what really happened, if any of that should actually come to the surface, then we're in big danger because that's when they'll launch another attack to distract us from what's going on. If you back off and look, you'll find that uh, right after we invaded Iraq, the first nation to really begin to kind of question what we were doing and threaten to withdraw its troops was uh, Spain. They had a growing anti-war movement, and they were about ready to pull their troops out of the alliance in Iraq, and then boom, bombs go off in Madrid, and they're back, back in line. Uh, the next nation we see is Great Britain, who has been our stalwart partner in this invasion and occupation of Iraq. And yet all of a sudden they had a tremendous anti-war movement that was beginning to gain credibility and numbers. Uh, uh, Prime Minister Tony Blair was just barely re-elected here a few months ago. The Downing Street memos were beginning to leak out showing that the Bush administration was just had an agenda to attack and invade Iraq before anybody had any information about weapons of mass destruction or what Saddam was doing or any of that stuff. This was a game plan and they were going to do it and they were in search of rationale to to support their uh, their pre-approved plan. And all that began to come out and a uh, big anti-war movement going on and boom, bombs go off in London. And now it looks like uh, whereas before they were not able to get a national identity card uh, legislation passed. Now it looks like they're going to go ahead and pass that. They've been curtailing. You see where they are now. They chase one guy down the street, shoot him five times, then find out he's an innocent person. That's uh, that's where we're heading to, okay? Because of the fear and the dissension that's being sowed by these terrorist attacks. Are there terrorists out there? Are there people setting these bombs? Of course there are. But the question is, who is truly behind them? For any of those listening that are old enough, you might remember the, one of the stock and trade formulas for the old TV westerns, okay? You got this evil bunch of outlaws who's running the homesteaders off their property, okay? But it turns out in the end, the Lone Ranger or Hoplong Casty or whoever figures out that who's financing and giving the orders to these rustlers and outlaws is actually the kindly old banker because he knows the railroads coming through and the land values are going up so he hires these criminals to create a distraction and a uh, false flag operation so that he can run the homesteaders off the property, buy up all their land and, and be a millionaire. Uh, hey, the script really never changes, only the technology. Yeah. Well, we set up an interesting paradox there because you said if the truth comes out, then we're in danger. So that's what, right. That's what makes it so terrible. Yeah. So what do we do? Well, what, we're what, damned if we do or we're damned if we don't. Um, what we have to do is we all have to alert our fellow citizens as to what's really going on and try to wean them off of the Alice in Wonderland version of life in America that everybody's subjected to when you watch TV more than one hour a day. Okay? Yeah. So turn that TV off. Uh, start thinking for yourself, uh, get on the Internet, go to alternative publications, uh, and, and don't just swap one ideology for another. Just start thinking for yourself. 
gather in all the information you can, uh, except the stuff that seems solid. If, and there's a lot of flaky theories out there. So, you know, just don't, don't try to jump on one side or the other. Just take it as input, uh, put it into that God-given computer you have a, called a brain, and just uh, after a while, it all tends to sift, okay? And pretty soon you understand that some of this stuff is solid. And if there's some theory, maybe one you like a lot, but if, it, if you go over a period of time and there's no further supporting evidence for it, then you better put that one on a back burner. The main thing is, is just think for yourself. Start thinking. Behind all this, the people behind all this, what do they want? What's the end game here? Global government? Well, the end game, end game is the New World Order, as you may have heard it called or uh, as the people within these secret societies, as I call them, themselves refer to it, globalization, okay? Mm -hmm. um, we all know the world is becoming one, and that uh, philosophically that's not necessarily a bad idea, but then consider this. If there was a terrible terrorist organization out there, Al-Qaeda, and they were just hell-bent on smuggling weapons of mass destruction into our wonderful country, then don't you think that one of the first steps our national leadership should take is to tighten security on our nation's borders? But that hadn't been done, has it? No. The, 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 both borders are a joke. The southern border is so porous that hundreds, thousands of people run across there every day, including uh, non-Mexicans, okay? And the border patrol appears hogtied and helpless to stop it. One of my best friends has a grown daughter who uh, was really dedicated to public service and actually joined the Border Patrol. And she would really wanted to do good work for the system of this country. She has since resigned and left because she said because of their own policies and because of policies out of Washington that they essentially are prevented from doing their job. And, you know, this whole thing of illegal immigration, uh, it, it, they try to style it as a racist thing, but it's not, okay? Uh, it, it's not a racist thing. It's a law versus illegal activities issue. When you cross a border without the proper documentation in any country on the, in the world, that is an illegal act. So when people cross in the United States without the proper authorization uh, or, or paperwork, then they are criminals, and they are violating our laws. And yet, when citizens, such as in Arizona, take it upon themselves not to go and try to arrest people or shoot at people, but simply sit out at night and then call the Border Patrol and say, there's people breaking the law, President Bush terms them vigilantes. Okay? And that's because Bush, not himself, but everybody surrounding him, including his dad, are members of these secret societies whose uh, public uh, agenda is globalization, the elimination of national boundaries. And what they're after, essentially, is one world government, one world military strength to enforce the policies, a one world economic system, everybody uses the same money, uh, et cetera, et cetera. All right. Um, all right, wow. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to uh, to, to uh, spoil your day. Oh, don't worry but, about it. We better start thinking about some of this stuff and figuring out what's really happening and who's really doing stuff. And you can't turn to Congress. Congress is totally bought and paid for. There's there's only about 
two or three people in the entire United States Congress that I walk across the street for. Okay, it, it's it's sad, but it's true. But then that probably doesn't mean anything anyway, because now more and more states are turning to computerized voting systems. Oh, yeah. And I saw a bumper sticker not long back that pretty well sums it up. When computers vote, there is no vote. That's the truth. Because, you know, you, Tim, you know, everybody listening knows, you got computers, you got garbage in, garbage out. Yep. All you got to do, all you got to do is tweak the program and, uh, and of course, then, and there's no paper trail, so there's no way to go back and, uh, and find out if the, uh, result was manipulated or not. You can take the, this past election, okay, the 2004 election. There were all these cries about voter fraud, but nobody can prove anything because it's all in the computers, and the computers were mostly owned by two uh, big companies, both of whom were owned by the same family, and both of whom had publicly stated they were going to do everything in their power to see that George W. Bush was reelected. Now, does that prove voter uh Computer fraud? Not necessarily, but I would raise this question, you know, over and above all the technical arguments and the, and the counts and the missing people and the missing votes and the, you know, lost uh, absentee ballots and everything else, if there was computer glitches involved in the 2000 vote, which, you know, I've got a computer, I understand things screws up now and then, okay? Yeah. yeah. So I understand computer glitches, but if it was computer glitches, then you would think the law of averages would tell us that at least one or two of those glitches would have thrown votes to carry, right? Yeah. But no, every single computer glitch threw votes to Bush. You know, now what do you think the odds are on that? Pretty slim. Exactly. Now, there's a little talk about, uh, let me just, like, Bohemian Grove and Skull and Bones. Right. Uh, the dark underbelly of these secret societies. That's right, and that's what people need to start researching and learning about to find out the connections between all these people. You know, and again, going back to what we were just talking about, in 2004 we saw a presidential race that, as far as everyone knew, was uh, Democrat John Kerry against Republican George W. Bush. Of course, there was a third alternative candidate that was a true alternative, uh, and nobody even knew his name, Michael Bagdari. And what was Michael's background? Well, he's a constitutional scholar. Oh, whoa, now that's the very type of guy we need. And right now today to, uh, you know, to know what our Constitution's all about and to adhere to it. And did he offer anything different than the Republicans and the Democrats? Absolutely. He wanted to call for a balanced budget, return to the gold standard, legalize freedom, pull out of Iraq. He, uh, you know, uh, scratch all the non Violent, uh, non-victimless uh, drug crimes. You know, get clear out our prisons. Make room for the murderers and the rapists. You know, so you had good ideas. Yeah, stuff that most people would say, "Wow, I'm all for that." Yeah. And yet, and yet, he is a non-person. Nobody even knows who he is, and yet he was on the ballot in all 52 states. That is a clear demonstration of the power and control of the mass media. Here's a guy who offers a true alternative. John Kerry voted to invade Iraq, okay? There's no difference between him and Bush other than degree. Michael Baghdad offered a true alternative, and he was on everybody's ballot, and yet everybody just skips over him because he's a non-person. 
And when I say that, you know, we used to laugh about the old Soviet Union because uh, someone would fall out of favor, and they would. It was like 1984. Winston Smith. They'd go in there and they'd excise his name from all the rolls and all the monuments, and they would go back in and retouch photographs and take him out of there. You know, and he just became a non-person. Well, that's Michael Bagdarek, and he's running for president, and he's alive, and he's not out of favor. He's on the ballot, and yet nobody knows about him because nobody hears about him. And when they have a presidential debate, he's not included, you know, even though he's on the ballot. He's not included. It's absolutely amazing to me, and it makes an absolute joke out of the idea of freedom and democracy because how can you have a democracy if you're not even told about who your candidates are and, and what the true agenda is? You'll find in my book, In Rule by Secrecy, by the way, that back in the 90s, uh, when the BCCI scandal erupted and threatened to bring down the Bush 1 administration, uh, who was it that led the Senate committee to whitewash that whole thing? John Kerry. <laughs> so John Kerry and, and both Kerry and Bush, uh, number one, are Skull and Bones members, so they've taken an oath of allegiance that supersedes their oath of allegiance to the Constitution or to the people of the United States many years ago, and both of them are blood relatives to the, the uh, British royal family, the Windsors. And uh, the uh, Burke's Peerage, the very prestigious genealogical publication over in England, accurately predicted that George W. Bush would become president because he, has, uh, he is closer in blood relationship to the Windsors than Kerry was, and that uh, same thing happened back in 2000. Gore was relative of the Windsors, too. You know, now, now people ought to really think about that. Wait a minute. In the last two presidential elections, both the Democratic candidate and the Republican candidate are all blood relatives, and they all are the same family, and they all trade back to the royal family of Britain. Wait a minute. Shouldn't that cause some question, at least, if not consternation, among the voters? But no, because they never get told this stuff. Exactly. Now, do you think the powers that be are getting sloppy or brazen? Um, yeah. And this goes yeah. to the this goes to the concept of revelation of method. Are they tipping their hands so we kind of know and we're like we're, we're screwed? You know, like are they, they, what do you they mean? Are, you know, they are, yeah, they're becoming arrogant with their power. I'm in control. Screw you if you don't like it. Yeah. That you know, and but that's because especially now since 9-11 and with the Patriot Act and the consolidation of police and enforcement agencies under Homeland Security. I mean, it's the, the control is becoming tighter and tighter, and so it's almost like they don't care if you know anymore. Yeah. You know, they're in charge. They yeah. like it, love it. Uh, and uh, it's really pretty incredible. And now, of course, since they've got control over the electronic uh, voting machines, then, hey, you know, and by the way, when's the last time you heard a national politician refer to the republic? You don't hear anything about the republic anymore, do you? Certainly not. All we can talk about today is we have to defend democracy, protect democracy. Well, you know, what is democracy? Democracy is ruled by the majority. Okay, I guess the most classic example of democracy in action is a lynch mob. They all say lynching, and the majority say lynching, so that's what you're going to do. That's not what we were given in this country. The people who fought the British Empire, who wrote the Constitution of the Bill of Rights, and handed us a democratic republic. And what's the difference? In a democratic republic, the guy, you can't just lynch him because the majority say lynching. 
you have to have a system of and checks and balances and laws that say he gets a fair trial and he gets legal representation and he has the right to face his accusers. He has the right to cross-examine evidence against him. He cannot be compelled to give evidence against himself. No, in other words, no torture. Okay? And that's, that's a republic. That's a, the rule by law. Okay? Now, if he's found guilty, he gets an appeal, the appeal's turned down, then you can hang him. Okay? Now, that's what we were given, but that's what we have lost. That's why they never refer to the republic anymore, because we are not a republic anymore. We are not a nation of law anymore. Bush has, and his administration, has routinely violated laws up and down the line. Secrecy laws, uh, you know, environmental laws, treaty laws, you name it. Yeah, it'd be easier to find laws that he didn't violate than ones that he, that he, uh, that he has. Exactly. So, see, we have lost the republic. We are now the empire. And just like every other empire, we are seeking to impose our empirical will on uh, other countries, other nations. Uh, you know, the whole thing in Iraq is just so tragic. Uh, I'm not even going to go there. I'm just going to leave you one word for to consider uh, in relationship to our unprovoked Attack and occupation of Iraq. What's that? Vietnam. All right. Well, let me hit. Uh, just, just give me your quick thoughts. All right. 2012. What, what do you think of that? Well, that's a that's a fascinating thing, and there's lots of lots of predictions, lots of thoughts, lots of concern, lots of hopes. Everything else, I don't know. I do have. Uh, uh, when I came back from the Yucatan, I brought uh, a Mayan parchment that had uh, uh, the date, uh, 2012, uh, in Mayan, and I have it uh, framed and, and in my office, um, so I'm very much aware of all that. All I'll say is this, I am pretty certain that come the end of the year 2012, you would not be able to recognize this country, okay? It will not be the way it is today. Now, that does not necessarily mean death and destruction. Uh, but I think that I, because the one thing I learned from remote viewing and from studying the Army remote viewers is that when they looked into the past, everything's etched in stone. It's just there because it's happened. When they look into the future, and particularly the farther into the future you go, the more hazy it becomes. And that's because, and this is important to remember, that we can create our own future. If we allow ourselves to be divided and to fall into dissension and fear, and we think, oh my God, there's going to be nuclear attacks all across the United States, and we prepare for that, we have that in our mind, then probably that's what's going to happen. If we decide that we're going to start thinking for ourselves and take control of our own lives back, starting at the local level and then proceeding upward, turn our backs on these giant corporations, you know, and uh, not go with their program. Don't let them outlaw vitamins and herbs, okay? And don't be, don't be subjected to the huge petrochemical-backed pharmaceutical corporations. Just say no and, and start trying to put people in the office who will stand up against this globalization. Then we can change it, and we could have a better future. And it could be that we all might be better off in 2013, but uh, 
I don't think it's going to be the same that it is now. All you have to do is get out on any major freeway. What a laugh. What a misnomer. <laughs> on any major city at 5.36 o'clock in the afternoon, and you realize that we can't fit any more cars onto those freeways. Yeah. So something's got to, something's got to give. Yes, absolutely. So I think there'll be a change, but now it's up to us whether it'll be a, a good change or a bad change. All right. How about the Bible Code? Bible Code is really just, that's still in my huff file, okay? All right. I, I've got a big bulging file of <laughs> stuff that comes in, and I read it, I study it, and I go, huh, and I put it in the huff file, okay? Because there is too much there to write that off as just coincidence or, you know, a nothing deal. And yet, I also, there's also problems with it, and it's not clear enough to be able to say that that's it and we need to, you know, guide our lives based on the Bible code. But uh, just the stuff I've studied, and for example, the words that they pulled out of there, uh, I'll give you one example. This just absolutely blew me away. And most people don't even know this. How could it be in the Bible code? One of the names that popped up by computerized uh, search of, of the Bible code for names relating to the Kennedy assassination included the name Plumlee, P-L-U-M-L-E-E. Yeah. Now, what's that got? Do you have any idea what that would have to do with the Kennedy assassination? No. Yeah. No, I know. I never heard of it. Neither would anybody else. But let me tell you something. I've been dealing with a person for more than 15 years now named Robert Plumlee, P-L-U-M-L-E-E. And Plumlee claims, and he's got lots of stuff to back him up, and he has even testified secretly to government panels. He was a CIA military black ops pilot who has told me and walked me around Dallas showing me that on the morning of the Kennedy assassination, he was the co-pilot of the plane who flew mobster Johnny Roselli into Dallas. And Johnny Roselli has been identified by numerous researchers as being one of the mobsters who very probably was involved in the assassination of President Kennedy. And this name Plumlee turns up in the Bible code. Now, <laughs> how, how much more strange do you want to get? Exactly. All right, uh, I've only got two little things left, so uh, we're heading to the end here. Um, now, I, I like to stay ahead of what the enemy is doing, so I watched the Penn and Teller show. I saw you on there. What happened there? I mean... All, I can't believe you would even go on their awful show. I know, I know. This is so typical of television. They contacted me. They wanted me to come on. I knew what they were going to do. I knew that they were going to try to get me in the worst possible light. And, uh, but I thought since, uh, since they uh, are going to interview me and put the camera on me, hopefully I could control the interview. So they set a, some director down, really nice fellow. The cameramen were all cool. And they all knew exactly what I was talking about, and they were that that was fine, see, and they got me into Dallas to the conspiracy museum. I should have known right then <laughs> what they were going to do, and I told them, "Don't take my comments out of context." Well, they didn't, and if you will forget everything about the program and and pin and teller then and listen to what I say it's it's truthful, it's to the point. It makes a point, okay? Yeah. But then they edit that out, and they've got Penn and Teller, who apparently only real contribution to comedy is is using four-letter words. 
and uh, of course the whole title of their program is bullshit. Yeah. Right? Yep. And right there they and they say now we'll hear what this idiot has to say. You know, yeah. this jerk says this. Well, you know that's not that that is not polite conversation. That is exactly. not normal discourse. That is just uh, titillation trying to draw an audience. And the only thing that I feel good about the Penn and Teller show is is that nobody seems to pay any attention to. <laughs> they they are obviously trying to promote uh, some look and some serious discourse about serious subjects, uh, but strictly as entertainment. You don't and you get the you get the absolute worst representatives of everyone. Uh, they find that you know they go to a UFO convention, and instead of seeking out like Colonel Don Ware, who is a respected, decorated retired military colonel with high-level connections, including the Council on Foreign Relations, who will talk very, very uh, eruditely about UFOs, they go find the guy with the aluminum hat, okay, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. and the mental problem. And they interview him and then hold everybody up to ridicule by trying to make it look like that that's the only type of person that attends a UFO convention. Uh, it's really pretty sick, and it's really bad journalism. All right, and the final question for this, for the whole thing here, um, and this one's kind of a little bit of a fun one. What does Jim Mars do on an average day? What What do you do? <laughs> well, I get up and I head to my office and I answer emails. I try to answer as many as I can. Sometimes they they slip between the cracks because, for one thing, I get so many or so much of that unsolicited uh, oh, no. stuff, you know, the junk, and I then I wear my finger out pushing the delete button, and sometimes. <laughs> I catch myself and I'm going delete, 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 delete. Oh, wait a minute! What was that? <laughs> By that time, it's gone, you know. Yeah. And uh, not only that, but then if I go off and travel, and say I'm gone for a week or two or so, and come back, then I got you know a thousand oh, emails. Yeah. And there's just no way I can get to everything. So unfortunately, things do tend to slip between the cracks. But I do try to. If somebody sends ask me a reasonable question, I do try my best to see that they get a reasonable answer. And that. See, people, I, people some years ago said, you need to get email because it will save you so much time. Well, excuse me, that's not right. And so that takes somewhere often up to four or five hours a day just to do that. Then I'm on the telephone with interviews, just like I am with you. And, uh, I, and then I'm working on a number of projects. And uh, I've got so many irons in the fire right now that it's not even funny, and it would, you don't have the time for me to detail them all. So, uh, and then I sit up late, late at night. Uh, writing, doing, doing actual writing, because that's when I can actually get something done because the telephone's not ringing. All right. So that's pretty much the average day for me. It's I can't believe I'm so busy and and uh, just trying trying to do a little bit of everything. Nice. Yeah. And what do you see on the horizon coming out next from you? Uh, another book or uh, some DVDs or something? Or what do you, what do you expect? Yes. We should be seeing coming out soon. Yes. All of that. Nice. Do you, can, yeah. do you want to preview them at all, or tell us about uh, them, or is it still in the oven, or what? Well, I'm I'm in the process of trying to do an update, updated version of my DVD on Aurora, the Aurora, Texas spaceship crash of 1897. This I I am beginning to realize could be the smoking gun of the whole UFO issue because, uh, you know, in years past they tried to say there's nothing there, it's just hallucinations, it's just uh, mass psychosis, uh, but of course now today everybody's got a camcorder. And obviously, you cannot take a photograph 
of a hallucination or of a psychosis. So today you don't hear that argument much anymore that there's nothing there. So today the argument has more has focused more on the idea that it's just misidentified satellites and aircraft and maybe government test craft, okay? Well, this was a UFO sighting that was reported by credible citizens from Oklahoma to as far south as Austin, Texas, and the story is in front page of both the Dallas and Fort Worth newspapers at the time that it crashed in Aurora, Texas, and the and the that third or fourth paragraph says the pilot whose remains were badly disfigured, but enough was recovered to show he was not an inhabitant of this world. And so this large silver cigar-shaped object, circular UFO, crashed in Aurora, Texas on April the 17th, 1897, six years before the Wright brothers even flew at Kitty Hawk. So there was nothing man-made in the air at that time, and yet something uh, that was silvery, metallic, circular shaped was flying around uh, all through the Midwest and down into Texas and crashed at Aurora, Texas in 1897. So you're working on an update on that DVD? Yeah, I'm working on a documentary about that, and I've got a number of other things going on, too. Nice. Um, well, I want to thank you so much for this opportunity to speak with you, and you're gracious enough to give me so much time. I really appreciate it. And like I said when we talked uh, the last time, Rule by Secrecy is what got me started on this, and I encourage everybody who's listening to this interview, if you don't own Rule by Secrecy, you need to buy it and you need to read it. Because read my book, Rule by Secrecy, you get a whole different view on what's going on right now, right, Tim? Exactly. Exactly, and um, it'll put it together for you, as I say. Yeah, like uh, like you said when we were talking earlier, uh, it's the roadmap. You know, it really it lays it out for you. It it opens up so many avenues of research that you wouldn't even believe it. And in a field, uh, in the esoteric field, there's so many people that make a lot of crazy claims and assumptions. And this book I checked today earlier, it has 38 pages of sources. Right. I mean, that's amazing. Yeah, you know, a lot, time, a lot of times, a lot of times you don't hear people, you don't, you, people don't cite their sources, you know. And Robot Secrecy is just amazing, and the other books, of course, Alien Agenda, right? Yeah. Crossfire, right? War on Freedom, that's now on uh, limited edition or whatever, and Inside Job is the new one. Yeah. And, and Inside Spies. Inside Spies. I got it. I got them all. And all of this is available from my website, jimmars.com, and that's M-A-R-R-S, jimmars.com. All right. Well, hey, thank you so much for this interview. I really appreciate it, and I know... I appreciate the opportunity, Tim. And, and you know, unlike TV evangelists and politicians, I'm not asking for anybody's belief. I'm not trying to say, here's the truth, believe me, trust me. I'm saying don't trust anybody, including me, okay? <laughs> but, but there's that 38 pages of sources. You go study for yourself. I've given you the, the uh, short form, uh, the synopsis of what all is said there. And now, and if you don't believe it or want to nail it down, then go track those source, 38 pages of sources. And then you don't have to worry about who you're going to trust and believe. You will know for yourself. All right. Well, thanks a lot. Thank you, Tim. There you have it, folks. Big thanks to Jim Mars for appearing on the season premiere of Been All of America Audio Season 1. If you uh, didn't catch his website earlier in his appearance, it's www.jimmars.com. 
And as always, I want to give a big thanks to the folks out there listening and my two fantastic cohorts at BenAllOfAmerica.com, Leslie and Chiron, who continue to support and help the growth of BenAllOfAmerica.com. And if you're wondering just where is this BenAllOfAmerica.com, you can find it at www.binallofamerica.com. Thanks for listening. Next week, we're going to talk to Marshall Klarfeld, author of Adam, The Missing Link. We talk about ancient astronauts, uh, genetic engineering of early humans, the work of Zachariah Sitchin, how Marshall got into it, how he takes it to the next level with his new book, uh, religion perhaps being used by the extraterrestrials, all kinds of stuff like that. And that's going to be next week on Banal of America Audio Season 1. So be here next week for that one. Thanks a lot, and have a good one.